Good morning. Y'all are here on Faithy Free History. There's definitely never been a possum on this stage, so <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. To, I got to get some, get one to hang out there. He's so friendly. <clears throat> Thank you, Julie, for that update. And glad y'all are back, made it home safely. We love having you. And, and yeah, whenever, whenever you feel ready to share stories and are caught up on some sleep and some rest, uh, obviously lots of folks want to hear all the awesome things God had you do on the, on the trip. <clears throat> well, yeah, every, uh, so every day um, we all go out and we live according to certain rules. We live our lives according to certain rules and abiding by certain regulation, regulations, certain expectations that are, that are codified in our culture, right? And, and, and codified in our society. They help us understand kind of the right way of doing things. Uh, some of them are simple. They're introduced to us when we're, when we're still very young. You know, it's something like, uh, look both ways before you cross the street, right? Everyone can kind of fill that one in. They understand that that one is, is for our benefit, for our safety. Other such cultural codes of conduct help us strive to, to live peaceably with one another and, and be able to establish kind of that common morality, right? The best example of this might be that golden rule of treat others the way you want to be treated, these sayings and standards are so well-known and so widely accepted that if I were to say one and then alter it in any way or, or make some sort of addition, you would probably pretty quickly realize that and kind of sit up and take notice and want to know why I, why I had, had said that, why I had made that change. If I had said, look both ways before crossing the street and then only cross at crosswalks or only by holding the hand of, of a friend, you'd probably be curious about these changes and maybe even start to consider why I'd made them and maybe how, they, how following them might impact your life. The Apostle Paul does something very similar in our passage today from Colossians chapter 3. Throughout the letter of Colossians, he has been trying to help these believers understand just how much Jesus has this profound and boundless influence on everything in their lives. Everything on a Christian, in a Christian's life is impacted by Jesus. Once you follow Jesus, you begin to realize and shape your, tr- your life around certain truths, among them being that everything, everything in your life comes under the authority of and submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing about your life, not your identity, not your desires, not your purpose, not your character or your relationships, nothing can remain unchallenged or unchanged once you make it your heart's desire that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father through him. And so, in the process of helping readers better understand this all-encompassing impact of Christ that Christ will have on their lives, Paul turns his attention to what it will mean to keep Jesus as the ultimate authority in the, of, of the roles and the responsibilities of your household, which are often include the most important relationships in your life. We'll take a look here today about how, why, why Paul did this and, and kind of try to better understand the context. But before we go further, I do want to be sure to say a few things about this passage. I know that for many people, and probably some people gathered here today, these verses have a reputation and that reputation is not necessarily one that you feel that you feel is good. Throughout history, th- this passage has been used inappropriately and illegitimately to, to sinfully justify terrible things. Women have been told that they are less valuable, less capable, and of lower status than men. Children have been made to believe that they must comply with anything adults in positions of power over them may demand. And Christians, pastors, and churches, both in the past and still today, have defended slavery 
and the subjugation of human beings to one another as a good thing, as a biblical thing, because supposedly Paul calls for that here. I want to be very clear before we go any further that, further, that there is nothing, nothing in this passage that justifies any of the interpretations I just described. God's word does not teach that women are inferior to men. God's word does not teach that children are at the mercy or under the command of anything and everything an adult might tell them in their lives. And most certainly, God's word does not defend slavery as something that is good or that should be required. I hope to make this more clear as we move along through this morning, but I want to be sure that we make it clear up front that any interpretation, any interpretation of this passage that diminishes the value or the worth of a person is wrong. It should be rejected, and if we find traces of it in our, in our own lives, and our own theology, then we need to be sure that those traces are met with repentance. We need to make the changes to remove those from our lives. The main point that Paul wants to make of this passage, the truth that he wants us to hold on to and and grab hold of is this, that as a Christian, your role in your household is subject to the authority and the lordship of Christ. As a Christian, your role in your household is subject ultimately to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you must strive to conform your role as a wife or a husband or a, or a father or a mother as a son or a daughter or any other familial re- relationship. You want to conform that to the expectations and the commands of Jesus. He is the authority that we are all trying together to obey. And our understanding of how we treat and interact with one another is, is based and grounded solely on our obedience to him. Now, before we get to the text itself, we need to consider some of the cultural and historical context of which Paul was writing. And perhaps no other passage in Colossians is it so important that we really have a good grasp of what was going on in Paul's life and day as it is here. Getting a good interpretation of this passage will depend on our understanding some of this context. It may seem odd that as Paul's moving through Colossians, all of a sudden he just drops into, without any kind of uh, transition or introduction, he starts just making this list of wives do this and husbands do this, children and slaves obey in this way. But for his readers in the first century, this sort of list would have sounded very familiar. Most, Most of the cultures within the Roman Empire at this time had something that was called a household code. They were the standard cultural expectations for what a home would look like and how it would operate if it was living according to society's ideal for family and community. And so long before Paul ever writes the letter of Colossians, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle popularized what would become the standard version of this code. And you can look this up online if you just Google Aristotle household codes, it'll pop up and you can enjoy going down that rabbit hole all you want to. For our purposes this morning, I want to summarize the parts of Aristotle's work that is most enlightening to what Paul's saying here and what he's trying to do. According to Aristotle, there were three key relationships in any home, or at least in any good Greek home. Masters and slaves, fathers and children, and wives and husbands. And again, according to Aristotle, the husband exercised authoritative rule over his wife and his children. The slave master, which was often but not always the husband, also had full authority over the slave who was not regarded as a full person under Roman law. 
So ultimately, according to the culturally codified and commonly utilized household rules, the man and the husband and the father of the house had nearly unquestioned authority on the basis of his assumed natural superiority. In other words, in the first century, Christians lived in a culture that believed that a man ought to be the central authority in all matters of his home and his family, and, this is the, this is the important part, that authority could be, and was often encouraged to be, domineering, self-centered, and chiefly concerned with the preservation of power and status. That was part of what was being taught in Greek culture. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Christians of Colossae because they were struggling against false teachers in their community. We know that from from other things that he said in this letter. And so it's reasonable to assume then that Paul has been asked to address what these teachers might be saying about how someone should run their household. Perhaps the Christians in Colossae were wondering if all believers are united in Christ and if all believers are, are supposed to be equal before the Lord, as he's already said in this letter, how can they go on running their homes in the Lord? How can they go on running their homes when the way that the culture tells them to do so is so clearly dependent upon a hierarchy that assumes that a wife is inferior to her husband or that a child is inferior to their parents or that a slave is inferior to every other human being on the planet? In light of these questions, in light of these assumptions, Paul responds with this passage. He's not creating or defining a new system of Christian household governance, and he's not prescribing the ideal Christian home. He is commenting on a system that was already in place and helping believers understand how they may navigate it while still retaining their faith and obedience to Jesus. And what he ends up telling them is that ultimately, as a Christian, your role in your household is subject to the authority and the lordship of Christ. So fresh off a series of commands on how a Christian might live in their, in their Christian community, in their church community, that's what we looked at last week, Paul turns his attention to the family <clears throat> and the community, and he says this. He says, wives, submit, to, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Wives submit to your husbands is straight out of every household code that you would have found in the first century. That part would have sent heads nodding in in recognition. They would have, all right, this sounds familiar. We know this. However, the addition of a wife's reason and motivation for submission being her obedience to the authority of Jesus Christ and not to her husband, that would have made everybody stop and pause and sit up and say, wait a minute, can, can you say that last part again? that a wife's submission is ultimately not to her husband, but ultimately to Christ. And then, to really shake things up, Paul adds a command to, to husbands as well. Requiring wives to submit to their husbands was, was fairly common teaching. However, requiring husbands to love their wives was not part of the household code at all. These two verses signal a cataclysmic change in the role of authority for Christians in their households. If a wife is going to submit herself to her husband based on what she believes is the best practice for following and obeying Christ, and if a husband is going to assume the responsibility of loving his wife, giving him a task that brings his relationship down into the realm of of mutual humility and partnership, then that means that there has been a serious change of who's in charge, who's ultimately and really in charge in their marriage. 
Because Romans believed, and, and most of the culture agreed at the time, that the husband was the central authority of the family, and with all members of the household, had to submit to his naturally superior rule. But followers of, for followers of Christ, there is space for only one ultimate authority in our lives, and in our family, and in our households. Paul removes the man and the husband and the father from that space as defined by the culture and instead rightly declares that that belongs only to Jesus Christ. Men then join women and children, wives and sons and daughters, and in Paul's day, slaves, in building up relationships with one another that are mutually loving and caring and kind and good and fair. Paul says both husbands and wives are called to make Christ the Lord of their lives and live under his authority in their homes. So if you're following me so far, you might think, okay, that, that theologically, I suppose that makes sense, and, and, and what you're saying is, is kind of clear, but, but what does that really ultimately mean? Because we still have to deal with these commands, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. How do we live that out? Submission, of course, is a very tricky and, and oftentimes triggering word for a lot of people. It gets a lot of bad press, and it gets associated with a bunch of modern definitions that don't at all fit what Paul was trying to say here. Furthermore, I think it's important that we keep in mind that while Paul applies this concept of submission here to wives only, we know that in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 21, submission is an act that is supposed to characterize the entire Christian community, families included. Out of our reverence to Christ, we must learn how to be humble and humble ourselves and live lives of, of service and surrender to one another. Still, we need to take this call for wives to submit to their husbands and love, husbands to love their wives. We have to take this seriously. It's, it's here in the Word. We need to figure out what this means. And so here is my best attempt to understand these commands as a Christian and a theologian, as a pastor and a preacher and a fellow, follow, fellow follower of Christ with you all shoulder to shoulder trying to figure this out. And what I mean by this is I'm, I'm going to give you kind of my summary of what I think of this. You don't necessarily have to agree with me. I would just invite you to consider it. And, and think about it this morning. A wife's submission to her husband is her voluntary act of serving her husband, helping him when he is in need, and being a supportive partner committed to working together for the growth and flourishing of their marriage. Right? A wife's submission to her husband is her voluntary act of serving her husband, helping him when he is in need, and being a supportive partner committed to working together for the growth and flourishing of their marriage. Submission is not blind obedience to any idea or any desire that her husband may have. And it's not doing whatever he says, especially if what he is demanding is in conflict with her faith or her obedience in Christ. And, and finally, I want to be sure that I'm clear on this. Submission, a wife's submission to her husband can never, ever justify an abusive relationship. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a promise. And abuse, be it physical or verbal or emotional or spiritual, abuse seriously damages that covenant. And while I absolutely believe in the power of forgiveness and God's ability to redemptively repair relationships and restore the broken promises that we may have, that we may have caused between each other, that does not mean that a woman is ever required to remain in place with a person who is abusing her. That's not part of what's being taught here. Additionally, Paul had said that a husband is supposed to love his wife, and so I would say that a husband's love for his wife is his intentional commitment to put her needs and interests first before his own and never use his cultural or spiritual authority in a way that diminishes his wife's dignity or drives her to bitterness. 
and requires him to be a supportive partner working <clears throat> a supportive partner committed to working together for the growth and flourishing of their marriage. Again, a husband's love for his wife is his intentional commitment to put her needs and interests first, to never use his cultural or spiritual authority in a way that diminishes his wife's dignity or drives her to bitterness and requires him to be a supportive partner committed to working together for the growth and flourishing of their marriage. A husband's love for his wife does not, it does not mean doing whatever she wants. And a husband's love for his wife does not mean putting her on a pedestal to the point where she becomes an idol for him. A husband's love for his wife also does not mean that he has to just grin and bear abuse and silence either. Again, there is no biblical requirement for accepting or putting up with abuse in a relationship. The key to getting all of this right, the key to sorting through all this and, and what a husband and wife should be to each other is that you must follow Christ into the definition of that relationship and never define your marriage based on what the culture is trying to tell you you should do. That's what Paul is trying to help people get away from and understand as he, as he recasts these household codes for the, for the believing community. There is no greater example of what a beautiful voluntary servanthood looks like than that of Christ toward us. So wives, submit to your husbands in careful reflection of the pattern of submission modeled to us by Jesus. There is no greater example of love leading someone to put their interests before, to put someone else's interests before their own than that of Christ giving himself for, uh, uh, rather than Christ giving himself up for us. There we go, got through that sentence. Husbands, love your wives in careful reflection of the pattern of deep, tender-hearted love modeled for us by Jesus Christ. He has to remain the example and, and the standard that we appeal to. A rich Christian marriage is one in which husbands and wives are helping one another pursue the example of Christ together. If you are each subject to the authority and the lordship of Christ, then you are side by side walking in righteousness together. And if you happen to be a Christian with us this morning, but your spouse is not a believer, then I hope it may be some comfort to you to know that your circumstances are probably much more like the community that Paul was writing to. There were probably lots of wives and husbands in the church of Colossae that were married to people who were not yet believers in Jesus. And that's the beauty of Christ being your true authority. You can submit to a non-believing husband, and you can love a non-believing wife because your obedience is not to one another, but to the Lord. And in doing so, you may actually end up being a brilliant witness of the gospel to this person that you love. So this morning, the question we have to ask, ourself, ask ourselves is this, is your desire to make Christ the true Lord and authority of your marriage? Right? If you're married, is your desire for Jesus to be the one who's truly sitting in the seat of, of authority in your marriage? Will your partnership be to get together be one that ultimately is about seeking and serving and obeying not each other, but Christ, and then following after that, serving each other? So often when things are not going well in our marriage, or really in any relationship, the first thing we want to do is focus on the shortcomings of the other person. If he was just better at this, or if she would only do that, everything would get better. And although it is true that every husband and wife will always have things they can work on and grow in and get better at, perhaps it is wise for us to slow down before we blame each other and really ask ourselves the question, are we submitting ourselves to Christ first before anyone else? 
when conflict arises, and those days of marriage are hard, and there are going to be hard days of marriage, are we quick, quick to lash out at our spouse, or are we quick first to seek the Lord, pray for his guidance, and have him help us understand how we might better love the one that we're committed to? The second relationship Paul addresses in the household is parents and their children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Paul's address to children here, again, is unique when compared with the other household codes of his time. Most ancient codes would not have thought of children as people that needed to be addressed, or people that needed to be responded to or instructed as members of the community, as Paul has done here. Most of the time, they were actually thought of as property, as future prospects. They were a way of securing a legacy, especially for the status and and the power of the father. But Paul here gives them a greater status than just property or legacy holders. Children are invited to understand their relationship with Jesus as well, and to start considering how they might live their lives in his lordship, in reflection of his authority and his rule over them. The command given to children was a bit more rigid and authoritative than the one given to husbands and wives. The word that that comes out here as obey is is different than the one for submission. It's different than the one for love. He says, obey your parents in everything. And and that's this wide, expansive kind of command. And I think one way that we can move through it is, is this. You could say that as long as children are living under the protection of their parents, it might be suggested that the biblical expectation is for them to obey their parents in as many ways as is possible with a lot of grace and a lot of latitude, but understanding that that is the call for children to obey their parents as much as possible. And when children are no longer under the direct protective care of their parents, then that relationship likely transitions into one of honor and respect, but not necessarily direct obedience. However, again, we want to make clear here that none of this allows for parental abuse of a child, ever. Abuse is a failure on a parent's part or a caretaker's role and responsibility toward a child, right? None of these commands allow or allow for the acceptance of abuse. I think it's actually a really beautiful thing that God makes it clear that kids can participate in their faith and their discipleship of Christ. My oldest daughter is two years old, and uh, she's starting to pick up on the things that we're telling her about God and about Jesus and about uh, how to, you know, care for our neighbors and, and do what mom and dad ask most of the time. And, uh, and I do want her to grow up knowing that if she listens and that she tries to best follow the ways that we are teaching her, that her obedience is not just about making us happy, but it's also about something that brings a smile to the face of God. As I was studying this this week, I was just blown away by the fact that Kids are told that they can make God happy. Like, kids can generate joy in the heart of God. And I think that is an incredible thing that the Bible teaches us. But again, Paul's command is not just to children. He reminds fathers that their authority is not absolute. Part of the responsibility of being a father is treating your children in such a way that the expectations you set before them, that the obedience that is asked of them is responsible and fair and grounded in the hope of their healthy development. Fathers, and, and I think it's totally fair to apply this to parents and to other caretakers as well. The, the word in Greek there can mean both fathers and parents. But fathers are told we must love and discipline and lead our children so that they know that one of the most important adult relationships in their life, one of the most important adults in their life, is for them, is in their corner. 
as someone they can trust and depend on. Paul does not want to see kids losing their will to obey their parents or to seek God or to be productive members of their families because their fathers and their parents are too cruel or too dismissive or too harsh or unloving. Jesus may never have been a biological father. He never married and and he never raised kids of his own. But through his life, death, and resurrection, he created an enormous adoptive family of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And the binding, unifying instruction that he gave for all relationships within this family was this. My children, I will be with you only a little longer, and you will look for me just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So fathers, hear me clearly. The the expectation of Christ, the expectation of your king and your savior and and the ultimate authority of your life is that all things, including your, uh, your family, would come under his lordship and that you would respond by obeying the command of loving your kids, caring for them, sacrificing for them, pursuing their best interests before your own. You're going to mess this up from time to time. You're going to get it wrong. But a loving person knows how to find the one they've hurt. A loving person knows how to go back to the one that they may have done wrong to and say, I'm sorry. It's okay to say I'm sorry to your kids. A loving person repents and grows and gets better after every mistake. Commit to loving your kids and commit to that process of getting better for them each and every day. The last household relationship Paul addresses is one of the hardest ones to find a parallel for in our lives. In verse 22, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Because you and I live in a culture here now that no longer accepts slavery, I'm I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time drawing out lessons and applications directly from that idea. I do think that there are some really good principles for for the idea of work and our relationship with those in authority over us or or our workplace, and and, uh, especially based on on verse 23 there. And what I would would recommend to you is that uh, Pastor Steve Ratliff, our senior pastor who's on sabbatical right now, actually preached on this very passage about its influence on how we think about work back in January. If you want to know more about that topic, you can go into our archives online on our website. Uh, it's on January 23rd, and its title is Faith at Work Part 2. That's faith with a little at sign, Faith at Work Part 2. And you can hear what Steve had to say there. It's, it's really good stuff, and it draws out a lot of this theology of how can this verse help us understand our workplace, our relationships in the workplace. What I want to look at here instead is, is trying to better understand how Paul could have drawn this relationship, the, the, this, this idea of slaves in the household, what he was trying to do here and, and clear up a couple things. I want to re- remind you that Paul is striving to help believers, mostly Gentile believers, 
of this church understand how they might continue to obey Christ while living under the household codes of their time. Paul speaks to slaves and to slave masters because they were a deeply entrenched part of Roman culture at this time. And it's easy to read this passage in, in isolation and feel that Paul just kind of wholesale approves of slavery. But that would be a a very bad misreading of what's going on here. Paul addresses slaves as people who have value and worth and are equal to others. This is a drastically, subversively different view of slaves than most of the culture at the time. Their earthly status as slaves, to Paul, does not impact their true identities of who they are before Christ. Paul also decisively reorients both the slave and the slave master to their true mutual master, which is God in heaven. He brings them to that same level, that same playing field. And then Paul actually never endorses slavery. There is never a hint of approval of the practice. He explains how the institution might work within a Christian framework, but that's a long, long way from ratifying it. Everything Paul ever wrote about slavery keeps the lordship of Christ in mind. Everything he ever wrote about slavery, both here and in the other other places in the Bible, would quite honestly make it almost impossible for a believing slave owner to do anything but see their slave as a fellow human being. And in all likelihood, they would have to consider freeing that person, just in the way that he told them that they had to interact with him. Paul believed that there was no master other than Christ. He believed that there is no authority in our lives other than Jesus. Our authority reigns in heaven, and our commands come not from the power or the hierarchy of human beings, but from Christ and Christ alone. So to all of these relationships, Paul says, as a Christian, your role in your household is subject to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submit to the Lord. Lean into the love and the kindness and the humility and the good treatment of all people that he expects of his people who follow him. Would you all please pray with me? Father God, this is a passage that is full of important truths. This is a passage that we have to wrestle with and and come to terms with, but that we want to come with with an open heart and an open mind because you laid these things down for us to find you in. You you laid these things down for us to consider truth. And so, Father, as as we soak in these words and and we learn your lessons, may they bless us in our relationships. Father, may husbands want to obey Christ and learn how to love their wives well. May wives learn how to submit to their husbands in such a way where they are serving them in the servant practice that you displayed. Father, draw parents and children together. Call us to remember that our true authority is Christ reigning in heaven. Father, I pray for those that are here that, that I know these relationships are hard. You know, th- things like divorce make this complicated. Things like being single make this complicated. And try to look through this passage and understand how it is that, that this passage speaks to them. Please, Lord, bring everyone to that central command that what we are doing in our homes is putting ourselves under the lordship of Christ. And let all of their lessons, all of the, the truth they draw from this come up from that central idea. Lord, it is a joy to be under your authority. Please call our hearts and our minds, our actions and our attitude to living in light of that truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.